Welcome to Let's Talk About Gay Stuff. We're the podcast where we talk about gay stuff and discuss the week in LGBTQ plus history. Yay! That's a look from Kendall. (laughs) We are Thomas, Tony, Kendall. And this week, actually, this is a very special episode. We have a bonus episode for you all. Uh, We have a very special guest that we have interviewed just in time for LGBTQ History Month as well as the election. So hopefully. You're uh, not hopefully you're going to enjoy this one because our guest is uh, in 2010 was named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. She's been named the top mayor of U.S. mayor and it was the seventh ranked world mayor in 2014 by the City Mayors Foundation. She was uh, a member of President Obama's task force on climate preparedness and resilience. Any guesses on who it is? (gasps) Anise Parker. Anise Parker. The legendary. The legendary. Mayor Anise Parker. Now you don't have to guess because you're here. You're you're listening on this because you 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 clicked on the description. You're like, I want to hear about Anise Parker. Well, you're gonna hear about her in just a few moments. Uh, but if we can just gush a little bit over yeah. Mayor Parker, she's she, awesome. Yeah, she does have a kind of a special place in my heart because um, uh, I had moved to Houston in like 2006 and did nothing but work for a few years, and so when I decided to get a job where I was working less and I needed to meet people and I was coming out, I joined the Stonewall Young Democrats and, you know, they volunteer for LGBTQ candidates or, you know, allies. And um, that was right about the time that she had been city council person and controller, but she was running for mayor, which was kind of a big deal at the time because people were like, is Houston ready for a lesbian mayor? She has this amazing track record, but, and so that's right when I got involved in like local politics. And so, um, I actually got to meet her personally, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, but yeah, she's like just great, amazing person. And so, you know, kind of special place in my heart. Yeah. So if you don't know who mayor Parker, is, so if you're, if you're a fan of a mayor Parker, then probably you're listening. Cause you're like, what does she have to say? But if you're, you know, just a normal listener to our podcast and you're like, who's Anise Parker? She is the former mayor of Houston. Uh, in that distinction, she was the first, uh, out LGBTQ mayor of a major city mm-hmm. when she got uh, elected in 2009. Uh, so she took office in 2010. And then she's also currently the CEO of the LGBTQ victory fund, uh, and the Victory Institute, which supports LGBTQ candidates, um, that's what the fund does, right? They go, they help uh, make make LGBTQ candidates aware of uh, the resources available to them. Um, yeah, so they'll do like training, and they'll give endorsements to LGBTQ candidates, give yep. them funding, and it's only LGBTQ candidates, right? You know? So even if you're a straight ally running. They're like, nope, you have to be LGBTQ. Which yeah. and, and they do, and uh, Mayor Parker talks about this. You know, they support uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and they support all races from, I think she, she'll talk about, uh, to the mosquito trapper in Florida, <laughs> yeah. to obviously we talked about uh, Mayor Pete, uh, who yeah. the Victory Fund. Um, so all levels of government. And yeah. I would say I've known some people that have went to their training, and it's it's very much like, you know, here's how to get out the vote effectively here's how to run a campaign effectively um so i feel if you are somebody who wants to run or you just want to help people like their training is you know 
very good. Which is crazy because one of the questions that I asked her in the discussion that you'll hear just shortly is, you know, did, what was it a surreal moment to kind of now be the, the CEO of this, com- this organization that helps LGBTQ candidates when she was herself one in the 90s uh, struggling through it. And she's like, well, actually, I was part of the board, which shame on me for not doing that research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was part of the early days. She was part of the board of that. So she's been with Victory Fund f- yeah. since the beginning. Uh, you know, pretty I would much. say, um, you know. I do feel she's pretty remarkable because, you know, she, as an out lesbian, had a very successful political career in Texas and starting, you know, back in the 90s and stuff. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm in San Francisco. I mean, she was in Texas and she had a very successful political career. And this is when gays couldn't serve openly in the military. We couldn't get married. Yeah. We couldn't have it's sex legally time. in yeah, Texas. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And she's been a completely in, different world. involved in it, and you'll hear about it, uh, it, it you know, in, in just a bit. But she's been part of the, the act. She's been an act, LGBTQ activist since the 70s. Uh, she organized, helped organize the Texas Gay Conference in 1975. Uh, she was the founding member of the Rice University Gay and Lesbian Support Group in 1979. Uh, she was the president of the Houston Gay and Lesbian Political Car- Caucus. She was the co-chair of the Lesbian Gay Rights Lobby of Texas, co-chair of the Lesbian and Gay Democrats of Texas, treasurer of, of the Names Project Houston. Um, she, and I, I like the fact that we got into this discussion because, I mean, all of it's relevant, but, you know, a lot of the discussion about Black Lives Matter, she was a early on a liaison um, from the LGBTQ community to the Houston Police Department. And, and so we got into the discussion about, like, the relationship with police and how they can be, you know, there's some systemic issues in terms of how they will uh, approach certain communities. And so she was there helping lead training on how to interact with the LGBTQ community, how to keep an ear out, how to be more supportive. And, you know, she's got a great track record from being a a person who was a a community liaison to the HPD, Houston Police Department in the 90s, to then being the mayor, to then now having, uh, you know, the police department of Houston be in the pride parade, uh, wearing their uniforms. So um, one thing that um, I kind of appreciated about Anise was when I was involved in like local politics, you know, she was a very successful in uh, politics in Houston, and she kind of never forgot where she came from. So, like, if you were some small organization and you're like, hey, we have, like, 20, 30 members, can you come and speak to us? She would make time for stuff like that. Like, she would come and speak to the Stonewall Young Democrats, or, you know, there would be, like, a state Stonewall convention, which wasn't huge. And she would make time to go to Austin and, you know, speak. And Well, she made time to talk to our little podcast. So we yeah, are and very so, um, I think I that's really, her activist route, too. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like, um, you know, I really appreciate that because, you know, she started out as an activist, a scrapper, and she, you know, helps people. Yeah. Like, always takes time for other people that are in the same position, right? Like your small startup scrapper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, we definitely appreciate that. So, all right. So, let's get into the interview. Before we do that, uh, you know, let's give a recognition to our sponsors. So, if you're new to this podcast and like pets, uh, listen to these two uh, advertisements here. Uh, a recent Gallup poll shows that Americans have reported feeling stress, worry, and anger at the highest levels in over a decade. And while we're growing more and more aware of the effects of stress on our bodies and minds, We may not have considered the effects that our stress can have on our pets. According to a 2019 study, there is a synchronization between stress hormones in humans and their dogs. 
If you're a dog parent, you probably know that your pup is very good at reading your body language and can quickly pick up on how you're feeling. We're always working to reduce our stress in any way we can, but what about the anxiety we may have passed on to our little puppies? Baked Bones has a solution. CBD has been shown to help reduce stress and anxiety in both humans and dogs, and Baked Bones has your dog covered. Made from organic, human-grade ingredients, and full-spectrum hemp oil, their bones may offer some relief to your anxious pup. Check out BakedBones.com for more information on CBD for dogs and the other benefits it may provide. Baked Bones offers free shipping on all all orders over $25, and you can save 15% using the promo GAYSTUFF15. That's G-A-Y-S-T-U-F-F-1-5. So go ahead and put that in your little browser when, you catch, uh, when you're making that order. Baked Bones is LGBTQ-owned and operated and is based in Houston, Texas. Baked Bones is now available at Man Ready Mercantile, based in Houston and Austin, uh, Texas as well. So if you're uh, shopping in, in person, you can go to a stop over at Man Ready Mercantile and find some Baked Bones there. Uh, for your little puppy. Baked Bones proudly donates 10% of all profits to no-kill shelters in the U.S. Baked Bones, baked dogs, happy. Woof. Woof indeed. Speaking of woof, what about uh, woof when you're uh, with your dirty pet? Uh, get your mind out of the gutter. We're talking about <laughs> clean pets. We want clean pets without all the hassle. And packing up Fido in the car, driving them all over town for a grooming, it's such a chore that many of us pet owners rarely enjoy doing. What if instead you could have the groomer come straight to you? Huh, with Aussie Pet Mobile of River Oaks, you can. Aussie Pet Mobile has spacious, 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 spacious custom design mobile units with all the luxuries of the salon, AC, heat, electricity, and water. That's more than I have in my house right now because it's being renovated. Truth. Uh, (laughs) No hookups needed, and they never use kennel dryers. Oh, no hookups. No, sorry, Tony. And, uh, yeah, they know harsh chemicals during the grooming process, so that's good. Uh, Their vans ensure that your groomer's ability to take care of all your pet's needs are taken care of from hair care to paw care and everything in between. They offer special services such as de-shedding treatments, whitening treatments, hair styling, dead sea mud baths, dark color enhancing treatments, and facials. Because I don't have running water in my house, I might have to call them. Maybe they'll give me a bath. Um, just kidding. This is only for the puppies. Their groomers are trained and certified and will pamper your pets with a hundred with a personal 100% cage-free one-on-one experience, all in the comfort of your driveway. You know what else Aussie Pet Mobile groomers are trained on? Social distancing practices. Yes, good old social distancing practices. So make your appointment and be sure to ask about their contact-free grooming service. That's Aussie Pet Mobile of River Oaks. Woof. All right. Today we have a very special guest of who we are very excited to have join us because we are, one, Houstonians, because, two, we're a podcast that talks about LGBTQ history, and while our guest has lived it and is a trailblazer herself, and, of course, three, you know, the three of us hosts are political nerds, as you guys know each week when you listen to our podcast. So why wouldn't we be excited to bring on uh, to our podcast former mayor of Houston, Anise Parker. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Great, great. Of course, we know you for the legacy you've established here in Houston, first as an activist and community organizer, then as a city councilwoman, the controller for the city of Houston, and then as the second uh, woman to become mayor of Houston and the first openly LGBTQ mayor of a major American city. 
We're Houstonians, all three of us hosts, so we've been gleefully watching your career for you know for some time. Uh, obviously, to the to the nation, you you hit national prominence when you were elected mayor in 2009, and of course, you've continued the national visibility that you have uh, now, championing LGBTQ candidates in your role as president and CEO of LGBTQ Victory Fund and Victory Institute. So, so before we get into the issues of the day, notably your work with Victory Fund and how you helped get over a thousand LGBTQ candidates on the ballot this cycle, which is truly amazing, uh, we want to get into, and, and we'll talk about the importance of the election as well, because we are casting votes right now all the way until November 3rd. Uh, we'd like to chat with you just about you. Like we mentioned, you know, you're, you're part of LGBTQ history, and, and that's what we talk about. So, um, so let's learn about your history. And I'm going to hand it over to, to Kendall to ask most of the questions. I'll chime in, but, uh, but yeah, I'll leave it over to Kendall. Yes, thank you again so much for joining us. It was... Uh, Coming out day earlier this week, and before we, we get into some political discussions, um, I wanted to ask, what advice would you give anyone listening who may be struggling with coming out? Wow. You know, that's, <clears throat> it, it depends on who they are and their circumstances, frankly, because I've been a professor at the college level and talking to young people who are still depending on, dependent on their parents and also uh, adults who are in very different life circumstances. And what I tell young people is, hold it together, it'll get better, you know, get your education and then get out of the house and, and then yeah. live your life. To adults, I say, figure out a way to come out and come out. But when you say it that way, it sounds as if you come out once and then it's all done. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that we have to keep coming out over and over again to different groups and in different circumstances. And, you know, I, I came out at 15, which is a very long time ago, and have, have been out my entire adult life. But it doesn't mean that I don't still find opportunities where I'm thinking, well, should I say something in this circumstance yeah. or not? And uh, so it is a it is a process. So if you don't if you don't do it all the time, whenever you think you really should, forgive yourself and do it the next time. Right. We had a guest on last year, uh, Tammy Wallace, the CEO of the Cha uh, Greater Houston LGBT Chamber of Commerce, and she was talking about that from a, a business standpoint. You're constantly coming out to every client every day, and it's a challenge. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you even though you came out at 15, right? You you said it's it's every day. Yeah, and and I can when I say I came out, uh, you know, I fell in love. I was in a relationship. I didn't come out to my parents until I was in college. I came out my very first day of freshman orientation at Rice because, hey, I'm going to college. It's the big city. It'll be fine. It's 1974. Yeah, it wasn't fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you learn. So that was the 70s, and then you became eventually the mayor of Houston, Texas. What was it like being out in Houston, Texas in the 70s? Well, as I said, I, I was born in Houston. Both my parents are native Houstonians as well. And although I, I had moved away in high school and came back to, to attend Rice, and I really was determined that I was going to be out from my first day on campus that I was, it was my adult life, 
and I was going to own it. And I was living in a, a women's dorm, uh, Jones College at, at Rice, and it it wasn't a particularly well, I won't say it wasn't smart, but it wasn't a particularly popular thing to do because then I immediately became oh yeah, that's the lesbian in the dorm, mm-hmm, yeah. and and it was and it was awkward and difficult. At the same time, though, I began to discover Houston's broader LGBTQ community, and I fell in, fortunately, with a group of older lesbian feminists, and they sort of adopted me, mm. almost like, like a mascot, and they, <laughs> they introduced me to the broader world of activism. So I attended my first LGBT organizing event, the Texas Gay Conference, and we went and we drove to Austin in 1975. So I'm not quite old enough for Stonewall, but it it wasn't that far past it. And and some of my mentors were very much of the pre-Stonewall generation. And I had a unique bird's eye view of things were were happening across the country. And then at the same time, I mean, Rice is a, it's a nerdy, <laughs> not yeah. very politically active place, but there was a friend of mine formed uh, an on-campus uh, lesbian group uh, in 1976, and, and I was one of the active members. And then I was one of the founders of Rice's uh, group in, in 1979. And so, you know, I started my activism in college, and it was a combination of just trying to make the college a more comfortable place for me, but also learning in a in a very safe, uh, uh, mentored way what was happening across the country. And you did activism for years. I know eventually you became president of the Houston GLBT Political Caucus in 86 and 87. What was it like being an activist in the 70s and 80s versus what it is to be an LGBT activist now, because back then there were some of the court cases and the laws that are in place they were fighting for back then. So how's it different now? Well, it was, first of all, you just, let me describe time. And no one had personal computers. You didn't have a way and so while there was a national movement, you were on little local islands, and you may or may not be connected to what was happening on the next island. So you were constantly reinventing the wheel and fighting the same battles, and the successes couldn't be shared or known. And it was... There was no media coverage at all of what was going on unless it was negative. So they raid a, a bar and, and, and still in most places of the country, it was common to report the, the names of folks that were rounded up in, in bar raids on gay bars. We were still presumptive criminals in the state of Texas because mm-hmm. of the state sodomy statute. 2106, and all of those things, it made it hard to organize, and then you also had 
that there were so few of us, and that the, you know, uh, while it's not safe today, it was, there were a lot more bubbles mm. <laughs> up there back then. I was asked a couple of times when I was mayor if I weren't, um, was I ever frightened or intimidated uh, by things that happened politically because, you know, I had some contentious meetings. <laughs> I said, I was, a, I was an activist in the 70s. When I was mayor, I had folks with guns standing behind me to protect me. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing that happened yeah. in the mayor was as intense as anything that, that you know, I had. And then I was such a visible lesbian activist. I was also, I was co-chair of the Lesbian and Gay Democrats of Texas and the Lesbian and Gay Rights Lobby of Texas, which actually eventually became Equality Texas, and a number of other organizations. So I was out and visible in a way that not a, not a lot of folks were. And so, you know, I'm going to, it occurs to me in the middle of this stream of consciousness uh, thought here that you know when the Pulse nightclub shooting mm-hmm. happened, and it was a flashback for me to a time when, you know, seventies and eighties, you didn't certainly in the seventies before you didn't go into a gay bar without looking where the exits were, yeah, mm-hmm. and where you could hide and how you could get out. You didn't go to a gay event without circling the block a couple of times and figuring out if there was anybody staking it out and how you would get from your car to the front door. Mm. Which is no a exaggeration. Which and is, it, it, it is different. It, it is so different now yeah. in that aspect. Yeah, well, that's a new reality, right? Post pulse, right? I remember going into bars now when we could. Uh, yeah, you start to look for exits and, and you know, how are we going to get out? What's the safest way? How, where's my partner to make sure we can we can get out easily? Uh, yeah, I, and that's what, that was your constant reality in the 70s, huh? Yes, absolutely. And the, the police were absolutely the enemy. Mm-hmm. And it's oddly, I, uh, one of the reasons that I was ultimately successful in my campaign for office was in my, I, I lost two races, but when I won in 97 and then the nine races that I won in Houston, the, the, the council race that I won and then most of the subsequent races, I had strong support from the Houston Police Union. I got to know those folks as liaison for the LGBT community. I actually taught at the police academy for five years wow. in their human relations program, talking about Homo 101, what was what this information about the LGBTQ community, about uh, policing, about how to handle different uh, aspects of interaction with the community. Again, all of this before uh, we were decriminalized. But I built I built ties with them. That was one of the the biggest concerns for a lot of folks. If I go to a and and I use the word gay because I'm looking back and it was all it was all gay it was the gay community and the gay bars. Yeah. Used the the, uh, 
the alphabet. And but you you were as afraid of the police and being arrested as anything else. Do you see any, I mean, is there a framework there? I mean, just in light of everything that's going on with uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, the movement there and the attention, I mean, is there, I mean, I know some cities are trying to, to you know, build better relationships and that's part of the whole defund the police conversation, but is there some, some lessons learned that you could, that you, you would offer or that you're talking to folks, as particularly of those candidates that you're endorsing right now, uh, about, uh, about how, to, how best to, to navigate the complicated relationship between communities, particularly those of color and the police department? Absolutely. There, there's a number of things going on, and, and one is we've the whole conversation has gotten sidetracked into this idea of defunding the police as if you could suddenly operate a society without law enforcement, right. which is absurd. But it is a matter of, of how you prioritize certain services, and if you put money into reduction of homelessness, for example, you end up with a lot less street crime, which has an impact on how you deploy police services. So all of it is tied in together, and you need to think, you know, instead of throwing out slogans and, and sound bites, if you really, you know, we all should be working to address how do we have a safer society that provides a safety net for the most vulnerable. But in the, in the broader context, what we worked on and what I, when I was teaching in the academy in the 90s was just knowledge and awareness. And the second piece was having a department, a police department, that looks like the citizens. Yeah. It was harder. The department was making tremendous progress in recruiting minorities and the, it, it still... I believe the police department is majority uh, uh, white, but but recruiting minorities, changing the, the the face of the department, but because of the state <clears throat> criminalization of, of homosexual behavior, you couldn't because and we were presumptive felons. It was really difficult to have openly LGBT police officers. Yeah. And so what you want is a department that, again, that reflects everyone. And so having black officers and black leadership matters to how black lives are policed. Having openly LGBT police officers changes hearts and minds and matters to how we're viewed as a community. So education and awareness you know, thoughtful conversations and then being a part of the service. So we do have a number of openly uh, LGBT police officers, and we've had we have had a trans uh, woman police sergeant in the Houston Police Department, and uh, they are LGBT officers participate in uh, the guide parades. They have been a visible presence and a uh, growing presence. Uh, for a long time. And so a lot of what I worked on was working with closeted gay officers, working to get them to gradually come out of the, the department even before the sodomy statute was overturned. But uh, then after that, they could comfortably 
become visible. And that was just a matter of uh, making sure the leadership of the department formally acknowledged how important it was to have openly LGBT officers. And granted, in order for them to march, you know, in the Pride Grant, for example, in their uniforms and with their cop car, they had to have chief's permission. And so one of the things I was able to do with, uh, well, as a council member was to get uh, the chiefs to do that. Well, I appreciate you, uh, you know, explaining that, just kind of that, the nuance, right? Because, again, it is a slogan that gets thrown out, you know, defund the police, and, you know, there's a lot to that, uh, but that doesn't always make the the, 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 the headlines or the, the commentary on Twitter. And there's always pushback in police departments when you say, um, you know, there need to be reforms, there need to be changed, changes. Did you see pushback um, when you implemented those changes at the HPD? Well, so first of all, I couldn't really implement changes in HPD until I became mayor, and then I I was in charge of the you know, hiring and firing the, the police chiefs and so forth. But again, Houston, for all of the, the columns that we have in the department, and it's not a perfect department, but we were the first major department to deploy tasers across all of our patrol units as a you know the non-lethal alternative to pulling your gun out. Yeah. We were the first major department to deploy body cams across all patrol units, uh, a, a, a hugely expensive innovation. You know, when you say defund the police, if some things that make it safer need <laughs> cost a whole lot more money, some things it's just a matter of putting money into different areas. But we've also had a uh, we've had a homelessness unit for a very long time. We've had a mental health unit within the police department for a very long time. So we have tried to adapt and find uh, new ways to to police and make us safer. Uh, I also opened the uh, the sobering center. The city of Houston operated the last city jail in Texas. Uh, until my administration, and we were arresting some, I don't know, 19,000 people a year for public intoxication and and putting them in the city jail. And so we opened the, the Houston Center for Sobriety, which is a, basically a, a... Well, it's not like to say it. If you ever watched the Andy Griffith show when you were growing up, and yeah. Otis is down, the town drunk, he'd get drunk, he'd walk over to the jail, he'd put himself in the jail cell. And then when he sobered up, he'd go home. <laughs> That's sort of the idea. If you, you could pick up someone who, and often these are homeless, for for public intoxication and take them to the sobering center where they're they don't have a criminal record. You're not checking them in jail. They have to stay, uh, I believe, it's a minimum of four hours until they sober up. And it costs us about a third as much as putting people in jail. Mm. That's you could say we were defunding the police. You, we were actually making an investment in more efficient police services. Right. right. When you took all those years of activism and then 1991 decided to run for city council, that was pretty bold because there were very few out elected officials. How did you come to that decision in 91 that it was even feasible for you? <laughs> well, yeah, since I was, I guess it wasn't feasible for me. But I was... I was recruited. I, you know, I had been 
a very visible lesbian activist. I was still involved in Houston. I was in the Houston Gay and Lesbian Political Caucus. I was, there was a redistricting battle going on. The city was looking to expand uh, the number of uh, district seats, and the community wanted essentially a placeholder, someone who could be the face of LGBTQ Houston as part of this most redistricting battle and then the subsequent election. And I was talked into to running. I don't think I was emotionally prepared. I really wasn't. Uh, I, I, I wasn't ready for the rigors of a campaign. I, I'm campaigning and governing are different skill sets, yeah. and I think I'm better at governing than I am at campaigning. And I ended up because we were trying to create a district, which is now actually District C. I, ultimately, as mayor, I was able to create that district, which is Montrose in the Heights. But uh, District C at the time was, was Montrose and out into Southwest Houston, and I ended up running against a straight ally, mm. and, and, you know, incumbent straight ally, and just got creamed in the race. Uh, I, I crawled up and metaphorically into a fetal position for a few years. Yeah. I'm never going to run for office again. This is, this is terrible. And then in 1995, there was a special election to replace Sheila Jackson Lee on city council. This was when she had just won her congressional seat. She's been a council member. Six-week campaign in with the election in January. And th- this time... I decided I would jump in, but there were 19 candidates, and it was December and January, and nobody cared. And I, I finished third behind someone who'd already been elected countywide, and behind some uh, two people who'd already been elected countywide, and they were switching to the to city. And I got a lot of positive attention, but the loss was was hard mm-hmm. because to be to be <laughs> really blunt they didn't know anything about the city and they really didn't care and I realized that I was trying really hard I knew more about the government I knew more about the issues than they did so it wasn't about knowing my stuff it was about name ID and and being a good candidate so the third time I ran I figured out I needed to do certain things to become a better candidate and I did it when you were running, did it seem like the electorate took issue with you being a lesbian? Did it seem like it was a, a big campaign issue when you were actually meeting voters? Not when I was meeting voters, although, again, in like a sweet campaign, there's not a lot of meeting voters. That, that campaign, 19 candidates over with a campaign that started at the beginning of December, there was not a single candidate function I attended that there were more people in the audience than there were candidates there. <laughs> so it was, I didn't meet a lot of votes. The problem was that in both that race and in the 91 race, every time I saw my name in print, it was an East Parker gay activist mm-hmm. running for city council. Uh, gay activist in East Parker said this about, you know, XY, the city issue in the District C city council race. And what I needed to do in that third race was somehow 
not going back in the closet because that was not anything I wanted or was even possible, but not be any sparker gay. Mm-hmm. And I actually had to, I made a, it was a little bit nerdy, but it was uh, important. I, I made a, had a portfolio of all of the newspaper coverage. There were still two newspapers at the time in Houston. Houston Post was still around. And the three TV stations that covered politics wasn't this explosion of the cable news, although there were cable stations. And uh, you know, I, so I had a little video cassette of the coverage from the races, and I sat down with the editorial staff, the news directors of the TV stations and the newspapers, and said, "This is this is not fair." And here's the coverage. And look, here's here's 19 candidates, and every one of these candidates who talk about what they do for a living. I work in the oil industry. My boss is. Republican oil man Robert Mossbacker. But what you have here, you have everybody's what they do. And for me, it's lesbian activist, or actually, it was gay activist. They didn't use the L word much. And I'm I'm happy to be called a, a a gay activist or a lesbian activist if you're talking about what we do at our volunteer time. But when you're talking about what they do and get paid for, you need to talk about what I yeah. do and get paid for. And I just had that conversation over and over again. And in my third race, the winning race, the coverage changed. And Gay was no longer my last name. And it made a difference because it gave me an opportunity to introduce myself to folks and have multiple data points. And it wasn't as if I was not acknowledging being gay because every piece of literature, every piece of literature I had in that, about my campaign, it had... Uh, it, you know, it had my it had my the company I worked for, Prospect Energy Company. Uh, it also had past president of the Lesbian Political Caucus. So right next to each other, uh, it was it, it was I. Most people they won't confront you personally. I mean, there are there are jerks out there, but the, you know, bullies. When you when you face them, tend to back down. Right. I can remember in that uh, campaign in '97. I'm in a runoff with with my opponent. There was uh, another at large runoff. Like Crystal Council Member was in a runoff, and the mayor's race was in a runoff. And we were all out in Kingwood, which is a very conservative part of the the city. And the three of us, <laughs> there's a huge crowd of folks there, and we've been in this candidate forum answering questions for a while and suddenly some guy stands up and shouts out uh, Ms. Parker Ms. Parker you've been here talking for an hour about this city issue and that city issue and you have never once revealed your homosexual agenda for the city <laughs> existence and it was like the whole like the scene parted like was, people couldn't get away from him fast enough I mean but it was perfect for me because I had the opportunity to look at him and, and say I'm, I've been talking about the things that I think matter to the the citizens of Houston, and I'm going to continue to do that. <laughs> and we just went around. But that was the only time I was publicly confronted uh, during that entire race. The it, it tended to be more like, you know, when my, I had six opponents in the race, and they'd say something like, "I don't think it's an issue that." Ms. Parker's a lesbian. 
and it shouldn't it shouldn't be something that that voters care about. You know, they say I would say it, and and since I was already putting it in my literature, it caused some head scratching. And then there was a a mail piece in the runoff on the weekend before election where my opponent, who was a it's a nonpartisan race. I'm a Democrat. He was a Republican businessman. And he did a comparison piece and um, talked the church that he attends. And for me, it was you know, no, 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 no religious affiliation. He's married with grandchildren. I'm single. You know, he's heterosexual. I'm a lesbian. It's just, wow. it didn't work. Did they ever bring your significant other into the discussion? No, and and it's not. I mean, I, Kathy and I've been together. Uh, it'll be thirty years in January, and so she was with me in all of these races. Part of it, and changing the subject just a little bit. You know, I I was the the first LGBT mayor of a major American city. I was only the second woman, and then and was at that time the largest city to ever have. A woman mayor. Well, both of my titles, largest city with a woman mayor and a largest city with a with an LGBT mayor, went to Lori Lightfoot in, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. in Chicago two years ago. <clears throat> and the difference, you know, I first started running in, in 97. Lori ran, um, well, I guess she started her race three years ago. Her partner was very visible and very much part of her campaign. And while Kathy has been supportive and she had her own business, she was in no way closeted. She 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 just she had her she had her life and she had her responsibilities and I didn't make her a part of the campaign. And I don't and, and you know, it's it's personality and, and preference, but it's also um, times change too. Yeah. And I, you know, looking back, I don't know if I, if, if I were doing it again today, I don't know if we would have made a different decision or not. But she was never, uh, I mean, the issue was that I was a lesbian, not that I was with uh, another woman. Do you, do you think that would change if you ran for office, uh, you know, in the future? Probably not. Well, maybe now. I mean, she's retired now, so she actually... So she has, she has <laughs> time, right? <laughs> she actually has Actually, as, as time, I thought long and hard about what I was going to do after I left the mayor's office. I have to say that being the mayor of my hometown and being a mayor in a strong mayor position was the greatest honor of my life and the most fun job. Anything else I would run for, it, it would be partisan. And while I am a Democrat, I, I I'm not. I've never voted a straight Democratic ticket, and, I, and I'm not, you know, just rabidly partisan. So, you know, I thought about running for county judge. Ed Emmett was going to step down. Um, I consider Ed a, a friend and a, and a friendly colleague, and um, when he changed his mind about running for the last time, I said, you know, I'm, our politics are very similar. Or we're similar on the issues. I not interested in, in trying to take him out. Well, Lena Hidalgo had a different ideas, and she took him out. The <laughs> other race I looked at that year was running uh, running statewide, and I was heavily recruited to run for uh-huh. governor. We were all wanting but, to. 
we were talking my about friend, it. Uh, my friend, Lupe Valdez, who I've known for, for a long time, uh, jumped out early and jumped out hard. And again, uh, give, her the, give her the space to, to do it. There are other things that I could do. And what ended up happening was I, I caught it right for a while. I was a nonprofit in Houston, and then I uh, went to Victory, of BT Victory Fund, Victory Institute, where I've been CEO for the last three years. And it is not as much fun as being mayor, but I think it's my second favorite job. Uh, I've loved the opportunity to help other people navigate the political process and fill the pipeline with amazing younger LGBT leaders. Yeah, so if you'll explain to us what the LGBTQ Victory Fund and Institute is. It's, uh, <clears throat> we are unique in the space. There is no other national organization that does what we do. We don't do lobbying. We don't do policy. We're not a membership organization. We are a PAC and an associated 501c3 and we focus solely on moving people, LGBTQ people, into the political process. We're the only national organization that only works with LGBTQ leaders. We do not. We respect our allies, but we don't work with them. And we're the only national organization that works in every state and at every level of the ballot. Well, so what that meant this last year, and it, it sounds funny, but totally true, we endorsed in a mosquito control board race in mm-hmm. South Florida, where mosquitoes are a big deal. And we endorsed for the first time in a presidential race with Pete Buttigieg. Right. And, and everything in between. Wow. So we are, in fact, our bread and butter race is at, at Victory the Victory Fund. And if you want to find out more, victoryfund.org and victoryinstitute.org, the, the two halves of the organization, the... Uh, our bread and butter races are state races because the equality organizations play in state house races, but the other national organizations don't. And state houses are where we can have the biggest direct impact on LGBTQ lives. And a lot of the folks who get elected at the state house level move up, move into Congress. Mm-hmm. And so it's an opportunity to to fill the the pipeline. So for me, it's allowed me to, as I said, I, I get to work with candidates all across the country. It makes me feel like an activist again instead of a politician. And I get to see the future of American politics. There's a, well, in 2018, at Victory, we talked about the rainbow wave and, and how many LGBT candidates were running. Well, this year we have the rainbow tsunami because it's much bigger than, than, than more than 1,000 people wow. from our community who ran across the country. And there are still uh, almost 580 candidates who are on the November ballot that we've identified. I mean, there may be more LGBT candidates out there. We can't find right. all of them. But uh, that's a huge number of people. When you consider that there are only about 800 sitting LGBT elected officials across the United States, 
we at Victory, uh, sort of a, a side thing, the Victory Institute maintains something called the Out for America map. And if you do an internet search, you can just type in Out for America or outforamerica.org, you'll find it. And it's, we maintain a listing uh, by, by state and position of every sitting LGBT elected official. You know, you know, I'm not on the map because I'm no longer in office, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's kept well, current. But you can say, well, you know, how many how many governors do we have? And yes, we have two. How many U.S. senators do we have? We have two. <laughs> oh, yeah. How many people are elected in in uh, Texas to the state house? Five. They're all women. Yes. <laughs> I found, I stumbled upon on the internet Victory Fund in, I think, 2010 and went to the website. And it was maybe, I feel like, 50 people. And I think, wow, 50 LGBT people running for <laughs> office. This is amazing. And last night I went on again, and I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. And it's amazing organization um, that's able to really put them out there. Did, do you recruit them, or do they find you? How does it work that a candidate... So they, 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 they find us. Now, let me say, the more than, three, more than, more than a thousand people are running... We actually don't work with all of them. We try to identify them because we want to know about them. And we do have, on the, on the C3 side, we do candidate training. And we encourage any LGBT person who wants to run for office to go to a candidate training. Ours is the best for someone who's LGBT. And uh, we also have resources available to candidates uh, through our, we have a candidate portal where they, you know, they identify. There are a lot of there's some you know, free resources that campaigns can use that we make available. And then all those thousand people, we engaged in some way with about half of them, and we've ad- endorsed approximately 390 of the thousand. So that's what you see on our website is for the. The candidates who are still standing for the November election, who we've, we've endorsed over the course of the year. And I would love to say we would get to the point where we could recruit candidates, but no. These are people who who stand up in their community and say, I want to serve, I'm ready to run, I'm jumping into this yeah. race or that race, and, and uh, then we try to connect with them. Yeah, that's quite remarkable. I mean, just thinking about the journey you described earlier when you were, you know, getting involved in, in the 70s and 80s and you said everything it was constantly reinventing the wheel. And now you're overseeing this infrastructure which connects people so they don't have, you know, there's templates, there's training in terms of how to run as an LGBTQ. What's your, your take on that? Is it kind of like a, a surreal moment or, you know? It's absolutely a surreal moment. I mean, the first openly LGBT elected official in the United States a woman by the name of Kathy Kozashenko, and she became a council member in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, not long after, we had Elaine Noble, who was a uh, state rep, and uh, you know, we remember Harvey Milk, one, because Harvey was in a big city, and, you know, he's speaking of someone who ran multiple times in law before he won, but we also remember him for the negative because he was assassinated. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't the first. But that sort of, we were, elected officials were very few and far between. And Victory will be 30 years old next year. 
and I laugh and I think about it. And I've been involved. Actually, I was a board member briefly of Victory in the early 90s before I... Uh, <laughs> actually, I resigned to run for the race in, 90, in 95 and it didn't go back. But so back in the day, we, we had an LGBT candidate didn't, didn't have a criminal record in a poll. We would do our best to, yeah. to help them out. Now we have to be judicious and really focus on you know who has the best chance of winning and where where can we have the most impact with our resources because we're a we're a bundling pack which means we we do support the candidates that we endorse but primarily what we do is we screen and endorse candidates and then provide that information outward to donors across the country who then make their own individual decisions and we are bipartisan and uh, really policy agnostic. So what what we're focusing on is putting, as we would say, putting the right people in the right place that'll do the right things. And for us, the right people are LGBTQ and because it is important that we are part of the American political process. And now, uh, a few years ago, we received some grant funding and we started doing the same work in other parts of the world. I have a particularly robust program on the Victory Institute side, not endorsing uh, like a PAC, but the training process in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, we've helped uh, elect a number or train and, and support uh, a number of uh, elected officials across Latin America, including uh, like the, the mayor of Bogota and... Uh, Oh wow! There, you know, there's. We had a conference last year. You know, pre-pandemic last year, uh, we had a. Every, every two years, we do a, a conference for the Americas, and I believe we had 43 countries represented and and 48 elected officials. One from each of those 43 countries across the Americas, and you know, so we're we're still planting seeds and, and doing the work because we. We believe that it is important to come out everywhere, and we, you know we started podcast talking about that. And you know the individual coming out individually is important, but having someone in a position of power who can make change is also important. So we're going to uh, continue to do that work in the United States and globally. Well, you've definitely been on that list of or on that list of historic and iconic LGBT elected officials for sure. Uh, we've had a lot of victories in the last few years with the Supreme Court cases regarding marriage and unemployment discrimination rulings. What would you say to people that might feel the laws are equal now and that we don't need to fight so hard for equality? You mean after I got over by like spitting my coffee out, or <laughs> you know, like, are you serious? Uh, there might be some uh, complacency out there. Yeah, I do think there was a there were for a lot of us. Marriage was like the Holy Grail, mm -hmm. and when we had marriage, I think there were a lot of folks who said, "Okay, we can we can rest, we can stop," but we still don't have employment protections in many states. We still don't have non-discrimination protections nationwide, and even the rights that we thought we had secured can be unwound. One of the first things that the Trump administration did was begin to roll back protections 
for for the trans community, uh, trans students, uh, uh, banning uh, trans service in the in the military. Uh, gay marriage is they're working to hollow out. Uh, uh, sidetracking you know, uh, asylum seekers who are uh, LGBT. All of those things were we were we were winning. We had strong support in the White House during the mm-hmm. Obama years, and then Trump came in. And what we realized is that you know even even something like marriage can be undermined so much that it becomes uh, you know a hollow victory. Right. And we can't allow that to happen. But the other part is that if you you can have laws on the books, but then you also have the lived experience. And you know, we're a long way from having all the laws on the books that we need. Let's ban conversion therapy, for example. Let's pass the Equality Act through the Senate. So we can't be fired from our jobs simply mm-hmm. because we're openly gay. But then we would still have threats to our person. We would still have an epidemic of violence against trans women, particularly trans women of color across the United States. There's a laws against that today, against assault. But they're not protecting our trans sisters. And so there's still a lot of work to do. And it's not just about laws, it's about hearts and minds and making, you know, talking about anti trans violence, a lot of that is directed at trans women because they are forced into sex work or dangerous situations because they don't have the employment protection. So it's all tied together. Well, we're also reminded this week that you can have a Supreme Court win and they can revisit it later and decide <laughs> yes. a, a different way. I yes. have one more question for you. We do have uh, straight listeners of the podcast that ask us how to be better supporters and allies to the LGBT community. Uh, which, that has been a nice surprise and great to hear that we have that kind of feedback. And what would you tell them, people who are asking for ways to be more supportive um, who might be straight of the LGBTQ community? What can they do? First, to be a, a supportive friend and ally to family members and acquaintances and, and, and friends who are coming out. And, and be be someone who is welcoming and, and supportive on a personal level. Then look for opportunities to... <clears throat> support LGBT organizations and initiatives in your own community. And then if you're further motivated, I would say look for uh, look for opportunities to support uh, financial organizations. There are, I mean, obviously I'm an advocate for, for victory and, and uh, being part of the political process, but you know, there are national organizations that support Primarily trans rights, uh, legal, you know, land legal, legal rights, <clears throat> advocacy at the federal level. Uh, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done on uh, AIDS. There's still a lot of work to be done. Groups like the Trevor Project, which focus on teen suicide, 
So find ways to support the organizations that do life-saving work every day as well. Right. I, I mean, that's that's great to to hear, and uh, you know, so stuff we echo often uh, when when we get asked. Because uh, as we know, with you know, like the, with the Black Lives Matter movement and Me Too, you know, it requires people that are you know in power that have you know authority. And much in this case, with LGBTQ rights, is often our allies to to speak up, you know, for us and with us. Uh, and so uh, all those things are, are great points. Uh, we're so so. Last question. We're in, in the midst of this uh, um, big election uh, from from. You, like you noted, from the top of the ticket all the way down to those important local races. So any any final words as we sprint to November 3rd? Everyone has a responsibility to, to be involved in the civic life of this nation. And I, I find things as frustrating as dealing with folks who, while I don't vote, I don't vote for politics is running. This is your life. You know, not making a decision is making a decision. And the reason that we have Donald Trump in the White House is because a lot of folks decided to sit out the last election. Mm-hmm. We can't afford to do that. And if you care about any of the issues or the rights that we've been discussing that, that are important to the LGBT community, you have to get out and get engaged. Yes, Donald support has gay support. I don't understand it. But he has gay support that doesn't value gay lives and most certainly doesn't value trans lives. So if you care about the broad LGBTQ community, engage, vote, be aware of who's running at the local level. And, of course, if you have an opportunity, support some of the amazing LGBTQI candidates running across America. Uh, one of the most gratifying things in the last few years that I've been able to be a part of is the growth in trans elected officials. There are actually more trans elected officials than there are uh, LGBT Republican elected officials in the United oh, wow. States right now, wow. <laughs> and the number and the number is is uh, growing. You can find if you're interested. You can find them on Victory website. You can see our amazing candidates of color. You can see the trans candidates who are running. There's a, a small number of Republican candidates. We value our Republican candidates because they are swimming against the tide, and they're very brave. Uh, so. I guarantee you, though, you can find somebody to get behind. For sure. Well, thank you so much. And if, if we see your uh, name on a ballot again, I mean, feel free to come back to our podcast and talk to us in the future. <laughs> okay. You know, 2022, taking on the governor, or 2024, taking on Cruz. Well, we would gladly welcome seeing your name on the ballot for what it's worth. Um, thank you. Cabinet thank position. You. But thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed this chat and all of the information you shared about your, your life, your time in Houston politics, and the important work you're doing in mobilizing and supporting LGBTQ candidates and, of course, getting them elected so that we have a seat at the table, uh, we have a voice that's being heard, and ultimately our, our rights are being protected. So uh, Mayor Anise Parker, former mayor of Houston and president of CEO of LGBTQ, uh, or former mayor of Houston and current president and CEO of LGBTQ Victory Fund and Victory 
Street Institute. You can find her at on Twitter at Anise Parker and her website at AniseParker.com. And you can learn more about LGBTQ Victory Fund uh, and VictoryInstitute.org at their website. So that's VictoryFund.org or VictoryInstitute.org. And you can find them all on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. So, Mayor Parker, any final parting words before we uh, sign off? Only that it's been uh, a treat to, to talk to you, and uh, it's still important to come out. Come out, come out, come out, don't yes. stop. Very good. So come out, guys. Listen, listen to the words of Mayor Parker. So we very much appreciate it. Thank you so much again, and you enjoy the rest of your your day. And uh, uh, looking forward to a big uh, rainbow tidal wave in, in on November third. So. <laughs> awesome. Me too. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Bye-bye. you. All right. Well, that was so much fun. Uh, I'm still kind of like, what's the what's the word the kids use? Gag. I'm like, what? Gag. Yeah. What kind of kids are using that word? Hello. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gag but, me. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> oh she was very generous with her time. She was. It was so much fun. I wasn't. Uh, I mean, uh, I. I'd like to maintain that I, you know, status isn't a thing, but I was, I, I got a little uh, starstruck while we were talking to her. And I totally, like, I wanted to, like, just gush, but I was like, okay, keep it together. Because she, I mean, as she was talking about her style as, as a politician and how she, uh, you talked about the Chronicle and, or the news stations, how she went to them when she was running uh, in the 90s and saying, hey, look, you talk about everyone else. You don't talk about anyone else's sexuality. And here's all these articles. So she, like, did this data yeah. analysis to go to the, the news stations. I'm like, I do feel, yeah, she's very, um, very astute politician. As I said before, like, you know, in the 90s in Texas, an open lesbian getting elected. That had come from activism. Yeah. And LGBT like, activism. Yeah. And, um, which is a dirty word still to conservatives, a right. lot of conservatives now. And to have a very long, successful career. I mean, she was served on, you know, like city council controller mayor, like for couple decades you know it was i don't know super cool enjoyed it she was like you said kendall very generous with her time uh i did i didn't know what to expect of course we prepared for it we had our questions but uh some of it just flowed naturally and i really enjoyed what she had to share like again i i i maintain why so why do we do this how does this fit into the uh the 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 format the flow of our podcast like she's talking so we do two things and and we do many things on the podcast but two things in particular we talk about lgbtq history we apply it to to uh to what's going on right we talk about current events as well and she was a nice bridge of both right she is part of history not just part of history from she was the first openly gay mayor of a major city but all the activism she did back in the 80s in a yeah. time when no one 70s, was doing yeah. the 70s yeah. and 80s in texas in texas right you, you yeah. think about it on the west coast you know yeah. we talked yeah. about the pioneers in the in new york and in san francisco and la uh and she here she was doing it in houston and i appreciate that she kind of like uh, chose to execute her passion in Texas. She could have easily said, let me go to San Francisco or wherever where yeah. it's going to be easier for me. And she chose to stay here and fight for LGBT rights in Houston, you know, and, and build her career here. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, I saw one interview. We didn't really get into it, but I saw one interview a while back where she was like, well, she was reti- uh, ending her term as mayor, uh, and she was like, you know, I'm still young. There's other things to do. And so, you know, I would not I would, I would love to see her on a ballot again, as I shared with her in the interview. If she wants to uh, run against uh, the governor, uh, governor Abbott in 2022 or Ted Cruz in 2024, I am here for it. You never like, know. Do yeah. it. Do the thing. Mayor Parker. Or even 
an Biden cabinet if that happens. Hopefully, I could. Yeah, I think that yeah. would be great. So yeah, uh, yeah, and I yeah, good. I think there was a reason she was chose to run Victory Fund. You know, after her, you know, all of her, you know, being in office and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so. she's very. Well, and the, so the second thing, right, she brings a historical perspective, but she also brings a current event, like how all that stuff is, is impacting our community today. I recently had a uh, discussion with my dad who was like, well, you know, your podcast and all your gay stuff, blah, blah, blah. So he w- and he's just like, why do you have to be so out about it? And I'm like, because it matters, right? This election's important uh, because you, there are things, there are people on the ballot which could typically could very easily take away the rights we have. Uh, to yep. get married, to have sex, you know, to to serve in the military. I mean, all these things—they're not codified into law. They were interpreted as the uh, as, as, as yeah. rulings by the yep. Supreme Court that uh, Supreme Court justices could over get easily overturn. So, what she's bringing to the table, the discussion, uh, advocating for LGBTQ candidates and helping train them so that they could be effective in their jobs and ensuring not just that they're present at the table, but they really have a voice and are helping set the agenda yeah. so that we maintain our rights. I, I mean, that's... Yeah, you never take anything for granted because... That's a legacy. Yeah. That she, well, it's she, easy to get complacent once mm-hmm. you have... The, you feel like, okay, now we can get married. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And but then, it's... Yeah. But it's not One true. Supreme Court decision away, yeah. Exactly. And they're already talking about bringing it up again. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, it was, I was such a privilege to have her on and talk to her. I appreciate the time she's taken. So... Um, thank you to the folks at the at Victory Fund who helped, or LGBTQ Victory Fund who helped put this on uh, for us. They helped coordinate the uh, the interview, so I'm very appreciative to them. Yeah, and as I said, like before, I appreciate her because she always makes time for people. You know, like small organizations of like 30 people. When she's got a lot of responsibility, you know, because she's you know married, she has kids. Like when I knew her, when she was running for mayor. It's like she had wife, kids, and she still made time for, like, an organization of 30 people. Like, I'm going to show up and, like, talk to you guys. You know, that's taking time out of her personal life. And being, you know, controller and mayor, it's, like, a lot of shit going on. And Yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah. Very cool. Well, all right. Uh, how about we go, we wrap this thing up? But before we do, uh, AIDS Houston Foundation is hosting their annual World, World AIDS Day luncheon on December 1st. However, this year, things will be a little bit different. For 2020, World AIDS Day will be a virtual experience. AFH was founded in 1982 and has continued to serve the evolving needs of those living with and affected by HIV and AIDS in the community. AFH's World AIDS Day Luncheon was a finalist for the best fundraising event in the city by Outsmart's 2020 Gayest and Greatest. On December 1st, the event will be hosted live by Ernie Manus from Be Design. The show will include celebrity cameos and interviews, pop-ins by AFH staff and board, um, current Mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, Judge Lena Hidalgo, client and community testimonials, award honorees, drag and musical performances, and so much more. We are proud to be a media partner and hope that you will join us in the fight to end the HIV epidemic in Houston by supporting World AIDS Day 2020, a virtual event. Access to the event just starts at just $5, and underwriting opportunities start at $500. So please visit WorldAidsDayHouston.org to learn more. Help stop the spread of HIV and AIDS and help you know, help fund the, the, the need to educate folks. So this is a, a good organization, a good cause, and uh, be sure to participate. Woof. There's an, I don't know if there's a woof. <laughs> uh, we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Economy Works. Need help marketing? Hire a freelancer. Need help building a website? Why not hire a freelancer? You need help with benchmarking analysis? Hey, 
why don't you just hire a freelancer already? They've got stay-at-home moms. They've got retirees. They've got independent consultants. They've got all the freelancers you need. And Economy Works believes in the power of connection and wants to connect you with its talent network. The talent network has over 800 years of experience and it's growing in HR, marketing, IT, accounting, and other specialties. Economy Works. When we work, the economy works. Woo. You can find out more at economyworks.com. That's E-C-O-N-O-M-I-W-O-R-K-S.com. No wolf. Woof. <laughs> All right. Well, calling me out, damn bitch. That's your line. It's the one thing we it's do. Like a slave driver around here. Well, thank you for listening to <laughs> our podcast, our special episode with Mayor Anise Parker. Uh, she again is the CEO of Victory LGBTQ Victory Fund and uh, Victory Institute. Uh, you can find out more information about LGBTQ Victory Fund at victoryfund.org. Uh, you can also find information about them uh, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Victory Fund. So be sure to check them out. Uh, again, thank you for listening to this special episode. A special thank you to the guy who keeps our sound in check, Spencer, Hello. doing the, the 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 sound editing, making it all happen. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to Spencer and Chris, where you can hear uh, all the things, true crime, murder mysteries, scary things, all of it. At our spoopy.com or our spoopy podcast, <laughs> our, our spoopy podcast.com. They also, if you're into uh, drag queens and recap shows about RuPaul's Drag Race, currently Holland, they also got a show called Our Rupee Podcast. Woo! You can find them at Our Rupee Podcast on wherever you listen to your podcast. That's a Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, wherever you do it, you can find them. So uh, catch the cackles with Spencer and Chris. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to us so you can hear future episodes. Uh, you can visit our website at letstalkaboutgaystuff.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Let's Talk About Gay Stuff and on Twitter at Talk Gay Stuff. Uh, follow the social media accounts if you're new and just listening because uh, you wanted to hear Mayor Parker talk. We do a daily post of LGBTQ history, so check that out on our social media. You can leave us a review also. Tell us what you think. Five stars. We'll take it. We'll take it. We're down mm-hmm. for it. Give us a review. Oh, we'll take it. Um, don't want to give us feedback in public? You can just send us an email. And let's talk about gay stuff at gmail.com. Uh, we are all part of the Listen Works Network, so thank you very much for listening. Uh, and that's it. So <laughs> we're here. We're queer. Get used to it. <laughs>